0: This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer. And oh man, this episode is going to be good. We have one of the world's greatest explorers on telling an absolutely inspiring and amazing and at times crazy story. I think you're going to like this one. Are you ready? Let's go. Levison Wood is a British explorer and writer and photographer. He's written seven best selling books, he's presented and produced some of the best travel documentaries out there. And he's done some, quite simply, incredible expeditions, including walking the 4,000-plus mile length of the Nile River, trekking the entire range of the Himalayas, 1,700 miles on foot across the roof of the world. I'm particularly jealous of that one. And most recently, following in the annual migration of African elephants through Botswana, which is an incredible story that highlights the plight of these intelligent fascinating and amazing animals i will link to all these books on the website including his latest one a photography book encounters which documents in beautiful imagery the last 15 years of his adventures i'll be sharing images from that on social media too so do check that out finally you can also catch him on tour in the uk this autumn if you live there it's a definite not to be missed and if you don't what a good excuse to go and visit the uk You can find out more about all of this, including tour dates, at levisonwood.com or on his social media. Just search it up. He's everywhere. He's a great writer. He shares awesome things, but more than that, he really delves deeply into his subjects in a way that is both inspiring and informative in equal measure. And that is what The Best Travel Writing is all about. But his greatest story from the road and the story that he's going to tell us today is his most complex expedition yet circumnavigating the Arabian Peninsula. It's a 5,000-mile journey across 13 countries, following in the footsteps of great explorers such as Lawrence of Arabia and Wilfred Thesiger, through some of the harshest and most dangerous places on the planet, but also some of the most historic and fascinating too. It's an incredible story. It's really an incredible adventure, and it will challenge our preconceptions of this misunderstood part of the world. The book he wrote about it is called Simply Arabia, A Journey Through the Heart of the Middle East. And please do check that out. So we're just about to get going with the story. But first, and really quickly, if you are enjoying the show, remember to spread the word, tell a friend, a fellow explorer, leave a review. It all really does make a huge difference. You guys are helping to make this show grow, which really means so much to me. And through that, you're also helping to spread this message, our message of positivity, unity, and love for the outdoors. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for everything you do. My social media handle is at Podcast across Instagram and Facebook, and you can sign up to the newsletter as well as see lots of background info, photographs, videos, and more from this episode and all the others at armchair-explorer.com. Finally, I just want to let you know, I've set up an adventure travel agency, which basically just draws upon my 15 years as an award-winning travel writer for the likes of National Geographic and the London Times to help you plan out and book your next adventure. Drop me a line through the website or social media. I would love to help you make that dream trip come true. But for now, Don't worry about all that because we are about to embark on an absolutely incredible journey—a quest through the heart of the Middle East. But first, let's meet Levison.
1: Ever since I was a kid, I had been fascinated by tales of Victorian exploration. You know, I read all about Shackleton and Scott and David Livingstone, and um, so it was kind of a gradual interest that just never really went away. And. I lost my wallet when I was about 16 um, and, you know, I thought it was all gone, but it it actually got posted back by a young army officer with a note and I kept in touch with this guy. Um, He ended up writing this huge piece of advice, this letter all about the kind of things that you need to learn before you go into the military or, or need to do in terms of practice and preparation. But the singular most important piece of advice in that letter was above all else, travel.
0: Above all else, travel. And that wallet story is such a great story because what he doesn't say is that he actually lost it sneaking into Alton Towers, a theme park in the UK through a hole in the fence with his mates in order to go on all the rides for free. But it's a great story too because if it wasn't for that one totally random chance event, the course of his life might have changed. He might not have joined the military, which he did after university. He joined the Parachute Regiment, in fact, which is one of the most elite regiments in the British military, serving in Afghanistan and elsewhere. But before then, and before his career as an explorer, author, and TV presenter took off, he listened to that young officer's advice. He took it to heart. Above all else, travel.
1: I was determined from a very young age to go and see the world, to go and push boundaries. When I finished university, you know, I I hitchhiked the length of the Silk Road to to India and going to places that people often associate with current affairs, news and therefore danger. Places like, you know, Iran, Iraq, um, Syria, you know, especially at that age. It kind of gave me a slightly more balanced opinion, I think. You know, I, I wasn't completely, you know, one-sided in my in my approach. Um, I'd been given amazing hospitality by um, people in the places that you probably least expected from. And so I wanted to pay that back. I wanted to sort of write down those stories and, and, and share with the world um, that sense of hospitality and hopefully challenge a few myths and stereotypes along the way.
0: And that is exactly what this story is about. And we're going to be heading to Arabia in the start of that journey soon. But I just want to say, most people, when they travel, when they're young, especially and go backpacking, it's Southeast Asia, isn't it? It's India, it's South America. And it basically revolves around having a lot of fun, going to a lot of bars, that sort of thing. I know that's what I did anyway. One thing it's definitely not is going to a war zone. But that, believe it or not, was top of Levison's list.
1: My interest in Arabia in particular goes back to when I was 21 years old. I was in my second year at university and uh, me and my friend Alex, we were desperate to go and see this, this region that was on the news. You know, this was um, in the midst of the Iraq war and, um, there was a lot going on, there was um, a lot of um, interest in the Middle East, but it was just seen as this faraway land that was too dangerous to visit. Um, so we just got a backpack, we flew to Egypt, and we ended up backpacking around Egypt, around Israel, we went to the Palestinian territories, and due to a, a slightly strange um, bunch of events, we ended up getting kind of slightly backtracked. We were supposed to be going from there, from um, from uh, Israel to Greece. And what actually happened was because some, some borders had been closed because of a spate of suicide. Bombings. We ended up going into Jordan, and from Jordan, the only border that ended up open um, that that fateful summer was into Iraq, because of course um, the Americans had taken over the border. So we ended up hitchhiking to Baghdad.
0: Hitchhiking to Baghdad in the middle of the Iraq War. Yeah. And it is a great story, which he recounts in the book, where he ends up in the Palestine hotel where the Western media was based, drinking cocktails by the pool, listening to tales of mercenaries hunting terrorists by day, and the crack of gunfire and Black Hawk helicopters by night.
1: It was the most bizarre, you know, summer holiday, you know, I've, I've ever had. My mum, of course, thought I was on holiday in Greece. She had no idea. It was a real intrigue, a real insight, I think, into, into seeing that, that culture. And um, from there, I travelled through Turkey and and we kind of, you know, live to tell the tale. So, I wanted to return to the Middle East, um, to go back to a place like Jordan, and um, and see how things might have changed over the, you know, the following thirteen or fourteen years. And um, and so that's what I did. In, in September 2017, um, I I wanted to go and do the full circle. So start up on the Turkish Iraq border where I kind of left off my Arabian journey all those years before, and do a full clockwise circle going around the whole, you know, all, down, all the way down through Iraq, around the Gulf, um, crossing the empty quarter desert in Oman, Um, places like Yemen which has been off limits for so long Um, Saudi Arabia which um, at that stage had never given out any tourist visas Um, and then finishing up um, you know going through the Holy Land the Levant and uh, and finishing up on on the Mediterranean Sea which is kind of where my journey started all those years ago so um, for me it was kind of a homecoming journey it was probably the most aspirational and ambitious journey I'd done because of the political situation very difficult to plan anything in that part of the world Um, And and not to mention the the, the genuine um, concern for safety in places like, uh, uh, you know, Iraq and and Lebanon and and Syria in in that time. Because bear in mind that, um, you know, September 2017 through to the beginning of 2018, vast swathes of Iraq and Syria were still under ISIS control. So it was genuinely pretty, pretty uh, sketchy at times.
0: It was, and that's part of what makes it incredible, but it's also incredible because of why he was doing it. He writes in the introduction This book is a story of my own wanderings set against the backdrop of interesting times. I have tried to challenge the prevailing winds where possible and contest stereotypes, hopefully, smashing a few myths along the way. That he does because the picture he paints is one not only of a troubled region still plagued by the aftermath of the Gulf Wars and the Arab Spring, but it's also one of hope, generosity, hospitality, kindness and courage. But first, well, let's just say hitchhiking to Baghdad wasn't the only time he found himself as a tourist on the front line.
1: I wanted to go and tell the, the stories of humanity and uh, and culture and hospitality from the region, but you can't shy away from the glaringly obvious, which is the, is the you know the abundance of conflict in, in parts of the Middle East, certainly in Iraq and Syria. So I knew that a very important story to tell would be to go and see the front line. And, and um, we managed to get access in Iraq um, with a group called uh, the Hashid, which were basically the Shia fighters who'd volunteer to fight against ISIS. Um, And it was the only way to actually pass through Iraq because the main road from Mosul down to Baghdad was still contested. That was right on the front line um, in those days. So traveling over land, we kind of had to join this militia group as they were advancing against ISIS positions. I've been in the, in the army myself and, and served in places like Afghanistan, but this was a whole new level of destruction, going to cities like Mosul and Homs. Entire cities completely destroyed it. You know, it looks like um, you'd imagine, you know, Dresden and Nuremberg and, and Hiroshima, like after the, you know, at the end of the Second World War. You know, as far as the eye can see, complete bombed out um, devastation, um, but this was only um, you know a couple of weeks or a week actually in in, in Mosul's case after it had been liberated so the iraqi army the special forces and these volunteer militia groups were basically just sweeping through the surrounding towns and villages capturing and killing isis fighters and, and we, you know, i was present there as we were advancing you know you'd see these villages with the black flags up ahead and that, that's an isis village you know and, and these tanks and, and and often just pickup trucks with with guys on the back with machine guns just driving straight into these villages and all chaos breaks out and there's there's not much strategy certainly not not from a Western military perspective, it, it seems pretty chaotic. But you know, there was a lot more on the side that I was with than on the on the other side. Thankfully, so um, um, it w- yeah, it was just a case of rolling through these villages um, and and liberating hundreds and hundreds of people. And actually, the women and children were coming out thanking the the troops that we were with for liberating them. Some of them have been you know detained for um, for, for three years. Um, hadn't been outside of their village for, for all that time, hadn't had cold water for three years. So it was quite a, a momentous thing to bear witness to. And uh, I feel very humbled to to have been there and seen it. And it was, it was worth the risk because there were no journalists that far, you know, on the front line. There was a lot of journalists in Baghdad and Mos- Mosul quite far back, but there was nobody right there in amongst these um, often forgotten fighters.
0: He is literally going to war. Armoured vehicles with machine guns mounted on the back are streaming past him. He's in a big group of soldiers. He has a bulletproof vest on. It's incredibly tense, but it's also surreal at times. He's on foot and then a tank stops and offers him a lift. He actually hitches a ride from a tank. And then someone pops out from the turret and asks him for a selfie as bullets are flying by. And then in the middle of the gunfight, They all stop for lunch. Literally, a truck pulls up with a load of packed lunches and they all just stop and eat. It's bizarre. Tanks are bombarding an ISIS stronghold as the soldiers around him eat chicken drumsticks. But there's something in that, in their hurry, to be first in the lunch line, which just humanises the whole thing in a really profound way.
1: The human loss and the tragedy of, of going to see people's homes that have been completely... Destroyed, You know, going and see entire apartment blocks and you walk in and there's children's toys on the floor. It makes you remember that this isn't just some faceless war that happens on the other side of the TV screen. They, you know, these are real people and it, it really did bring it home. And it's, it's a really important part of the world with a very long um, standing traditions, cultures and, and a legacy. And, you know, I went to on the journey, I went to the five oldest cities in the world. Um, and and it's you know important to remember that's part of, you know that's where civilization heralded from.
0: After the front line, he travelled to Baghdad, back to the Palestine Hotel where he'd holed up thirteen years ago. And then follow the Euphrates River past the ancient city of Babylon, the former jewel in the crown of southern Iraq, to the Mesopotamian marshes, a vast and beautiful wetland, where a unique culture that have made their home here for millennia is beginning to slowly rebuild their lives.
1: These very isolated Shia communities uh, who had lived... Um, in amongst these marshes a very traditional way of life dating back for thousands of years these are the original sumerian people and the people who came up with with um the original al- al- alphabet and cuneiform um, script things like that these people live in basically these mud adobe and thatched houses on on these floating islands um and wanted to be left in peace but Saddam hussein back in the 1980s tried to drain the marshes and and effectively destroyed an entire way of life and a lot of these people had to flee um, to the cities to have very low paid jobs virtually the whole Iraqi marshes were, were drained and it had a devastating effect on the environment on the landscape um, but thankfully, um, you know, in, in 2003, um, a lot of these guys came back and started to try and rebuild what they had before. And um, and it's working. It's one of the few places in the world where you can see this amazing culture intact.
0: It is a beautiful culture and a completely different world from the one he just visited, only 100 miles or so to the north. 250,000 people live here, mostly in simple reed and mud huts, tending water buffalo, and living almost completely on the water. And there's a real sense of peace, and oasis from the troubles here that's indicative of the Iraqi people's determination to get back on their feet. From there, Levison crossed the border into Kuwait and made his way along the Arabian Gulf through Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates into Oman, where he will cross on foot... The largest sand desert in the world. 250,000 square miles of desolate sand dunes and nothing else. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com.
1: The locals call it the Rub al-Khali, the the empty quarter desert, and um, stretching across all of sort of southeastern Saudi Arabia into Oman and Yemen. And it, it evokes such romantic imagery. You know, in those days, in the 1930s and 40s, it was all done by camel. Now, of course, a lot of those traditions have been lost. You know, even the Bedouin looked at me as if I was bonkers. But I was I was determined to at least do a bit of it by a camel. So I eventually convinced this guy to to come across the Oman bit with me. And it was about ten days across of, of pure, amazing desert. It's like just being on the surface of Mars with these beautiful sand dunes as far as you can see. It wasn't easy, um, but you know, like all expeditions, you've really got to put the hard work in to get to get those moments of joy and crossing those sand dunes and seeing that that landscape will will stay with me forever.
0: In crossing the empty quarter on foot and by camel, Levison was following in the footsteps of some of the great explorers of the 19th century and two of his heroes, Lawrence of Arabia and Wilfred Thesiger, who called this desert the final unattainable challenge, which it was. Brutally hot, treacherous, feet sinking into burning sand with every step, but it was also stunningly beautiful.
1: For me, the desert, that sense of purity um, is... It creates this in your own mind this journey of 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 looking for something that you have to really question yourself whether it exists because we think that deserts are big empty wide open barren places but when you get into the nitty-gritty of it there's life you know you in the middle of the least the, the place that you least expect it you'll see it you'll find a tree and you wonder how on earth it's living or a rabbit or a fox or or indeed people living in tents. And he makes you really question, is it as pure and as inhospitable as we really think? And it, it really does bring to forth the, the idea that we, I mean, nature and humans align, we are capable of existing in some of the most austere environments on the planet. And um, it's that constant sense of awe at the fact that we can survive. It becomes this quest of looking for the next thing, the next unexpected thing there around the corner, which um, it never fails to surprise me.
0: The author of The Little Prince, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, wrote, What makes the desert beautiful is that somewhere it hides a well. I've always loved that quote, and it's a great metaphor for life in general, for dealing with the hardships of life. But perhaps, particularly, it's a great metaphor for the Middle East today. No matter how hard and hopeless it seems, somewhere there is a well. Life will find a way. And he made it. After 10 days through temperatures as high as 50 degrees centigrade, 120 Fahrenheit, walking 10 to 15 miles a day, very little water. They nearly ran out, actually. They ended up having to wet their lips on desert plants that collect dew from morning fog on their leaves. Until finally, parched in sand, exhausted, he reached the sea, stripped off and jumped in. That must have been the best swim of his life. But if he thought the empty quarter was hard, what came next was even more dangerous. Yemen was a place
1: I've always wanted to go and visit. Um, I was told by everybody that it was absolutely impossible because the country, as you know, is in dire straits with civil war. There was a huge cholera outbreak at the time big refugee crisis, um, you know, it still is. You know, it's very divided. Um, there's no functioning government. There's the Saudi-led invasion, which has kind of caused all sorts of havoc around the borders. So it's, it's a real mess. And I knew that the only way to get in there would be sort of semi-unofficially. But we were invited by one of the local chieftains who said, look, I'll take you across the border and look after you and you'll, you'll be my responsibility. So that's what happened. Um, we went into a place called Almara, which is this? The eastern fringes of, of Yemen. They consider themselves to be uh, autonomous from the rest of the country. Um, they they're very much merry people. They're not. They don't really see themselves as Yemeni. Um, but they've got this very tribal system that, um, above all, counts hospitality as, as, the, as the greatest virtue. And, and we were looked after with with absolute respect. Um, shown whatever we wanted to see, and it was actually a really beautiful. Place It was a remarkable place. And then on the coastline, you've got um, these Somali fishermen, a lot of them refugees that crossed over the Horn of Africa um, following the Somali Civil War. So it's a real blend of people who, in that part of Yemen at least, seem to get along. And, and what they don't like is external interference from Saudi Arabia or, or from um you know other states within Yemen because the next state along the Hadramat is filled with Al-Qaeda and a lot more hardline Islamist groups so um, we were very lucky to get access to that region um sadly it didn't last very long we're only in about three days before the Sultan had got a message from the um I don't know one of his friends who'd read in the local newspaper that um he thought there was two British spies which is me and my friend Dave who was on camera um in the country they 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 basically said that if we didn't leave immediately they were going to send a drone to go and strike our hotel so we had to leave which it was was a pretty pretty binary option there so we, we left pretty quickly
0: yeah that's about as binary as it gets stay and get hit by a drone strike or run away in the middle of the night as fast as you bloody can which is exactly what he did It was a really difficult part of the journey. He came across refugees escaping the war, near starving, living on the streets. He had to be escorted by armed guards wherever he went for his own protection. Yemen is currently the largest humanitarian crisis in the world with 24 million people, some 80% of the population in need of help, many of them children. It's devastating. I will put details up on the website of some of the ways you can help the children of Yemen and elsewhere in this story. But after Yemen, there was a problem. Going forward as he had planned was impossible. The Saudis had closed all the borders, including the one he had just come across. And he was still basically on the run, having to change locations to hide from that drone strike until he could find a way out. And that way out ended up being a ride on a small fishing boat to Somalia in order to continue his journey around the Arabian Peninsula. He wasn't going to give up. The only problem was these were the most dangerous and pirate infested waters on the planet i
1: managed to convince the owner of a, a local dow which is the wooden arabian ships more of a boat really um who was heading for the horn of africa to, to give me a lift on that so i ended up spending the next five or six days on this sort of rat and cockroach infested fishing boat um headed for the horn of africa and that was probably the low light of the entire trip, because I really don't like boats. And two, I was—I was, not only was I seasick, but it was probably 50 degrees uh, centigrade. And not only that, we were supposed to go to Djibouti, um, but instead the boat dropped us off um, about three miles off the coast of Somalia, where we were picked up by a local skiff. And you know, we've all seen that film, the movie uh, Captain Phillips, it felt like that. There was these two odd men who just basically came on board the ship ordered us off, and then before we knew it, we were in Somalia.
0: Out of the frying pan, into the fire. But he made it into Somalia, survived, and from there crossed into Saudi Arabia.
1: I think that the important distinction to make is between people and between governments, because i come straight out of Yemen, where I'd seen the impact of this, the Saudi government on on a country and seen the devastation that's happened as a result, which you know, I completely disagree with but you've got to sort of distance yourself between you know the vast majority of Saudis like the vast majority of people in any country are, are really you know decent people very hospitable and I found that across Saudi Arabia amazing people And and I wanted to showcase that too I didn't want to sort of fall foul of you know what I was talking about in terms of making those stereotypes and so I came away very surprised at um, Saudi Arabia and, and actually really pleasantly surprised. There's a lot to see. Al-Ula and um, down in the Asia Mountains these amazing tribes of people that, that they call them the flower tribes because they they um, all the men just love wearing flowers. They look like some sort of English Morris dancers
0: with giant machetes. I don't know if you can picture a Morris dancer holding a huge dagger, but that's exactly what they look like. And I'm just going to jump in here because I love this part of the story, and I think it really illustrates what he's talking about. On the one hand, you have these tribes of the Assir Mountains who are feared as ferocious, violent people who carry these huge, sharp swords with them wherever they go, and on the other hand in their spare time, they make flower bouquets. So they're actually rather sensitive. And Levison actually gets a crown done for himself, which is rather dashing. But one person that wouldn't be caught dead with a flower crown is the 19th century explorer Richard Burton, also one of Levison's heroes. And the reason I mention him is because next stop is Mecca, where it's forbidden for non-Muslims to go and punishable by death. But Burton wasn't having any of that. Fluent in Arabic, he decided to disguise himself as an Islamic pilgrim, join the Hajj, and enter the holy site to see it for himself. He succeeded. Just. Levison decided not to follow suit very sensibly. But he did see lots of cool things while he was in Saudi Arabia. The ancient ruins of Alula, a now-abandoned city with thousands of years of untold history. He met beatboxers. Yes, beatboxers. And they were good in Jeddah, which is a relatively liberal city. And he met insane boy racers who, in a country where alcohol and dating are banned get their kicks by basically driving as fast as they can and then suddenly tilting their trucks onto the side on two wheels in a kind of crazy stunt that would make the fast and the furious proud. Saudi Arabia, like all of the Middle East, in fact, and us too, was full of complexity and contradictions. And perhaps Levison's right. Take it down to the level of people, not governments. And despite our differences, there's so much we still share. Next up was a place that maybe needs to remember that more than anywhere else, the West Bank.
1: It's a perennial sort of um, conflict zone, isn't it? The the, the West Bank and Palestine and Israel. And whichever sort of side you look at it from, it just, it never becomes any less complicated. And uh, it's a very difficult one to get your head around because there's grievances on both sides. There's a conflict that's been going on for generations and um, I don't think there's any easy solution. Um, What I would say is people on both sides, the vast majority, want peace. They really do. And it's just, there's a very small... Minority at the sort of leadership levels on both sides that, who have invested interest in keeping this conflict going. I, I sort of saw a, a protest that basically turned into a riot in Jericho, um, and uh, I was filming it from the Palestinian side. But having knowing that you know a couple of days later I was going to meet the Israelis, so it's very weird because the Israelis um you know the idf on on the one hand they had no idea who i was because um the uh, you know the the palestinians told me to to wear a wear a headscarf and 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 blend in with them and i didn't really have much choice so you know i was getting shot at like the rest of them you know having a rubber bullet whizz past your your face and and getting tear gassed you know is is a is a a bit of an eye-opening situation and so um but
0: part of the story so you have to kind of um you have to be in it, and, and, and we we're, we're ride right on that front line. I don't want to get political. It's too complicated, and that's not what this show is about. But I will say that watching this scene in the documentary, it struck me that, first of all, these are just kids. They're really young kids. Some are about eight years old, if you can believe that, which is tragic, whatever you believe. But on a deeper level, it made me think people need hope to survive. But equally, and you see this as he crosses over onto the Israeli side later on, people need to feel secure, they need safety. So it is this kind of vicious spiral because they feed each other, which makes it incredibly complicated to fix, but also incredibly simple. And the vast majority of people, as Levison says, want that feeding frenzy to stop. There's an old proverb which he cites in the book, if one soldier knew what the other thinks, there would be no war. But despite its problems... The Holy Land is still a beautiful place.
1: For me, there's there's nowhere in the world quite like Jerusalem. There is that palpable sense of um, heritage and history everywhere you go, every turn, every brick. You know, it's it's very almost overwhelming to think of the what's happened there over the millennia, and um, it really is. It's 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 in every stone. So it's it's quite a special place.
0: The Old City is tiny, less than half a square mile, but it contains more than 200 of the most treasured monuments on Earth. Half of the world's population believe it to be the most sacred place on the planet. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Wailing Wall, the Temple of the Mount, the Dome of the Rock. For thousands of years and continuing to this day, religious wars have been fought for control of this half a square mile, less than a third of the size of Central Park in New York. It's crazy. But perhaps that fight is also the point. Right before he's about to leave, Levison visits an antique shop, just a really humble little place run by an old man. there's all sorts of treasures inside, but the real treasure is this guy. and he tells him that we're meant to come together here, that the three major monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are meant to all hold this place holy because if they didn't, we'd always be divided. This is where we're supposed to work it out here. Where it's hardest is also where one day we will truly unite. But that's not easy, especially where he's going next. After Israel and Palestine, he travelled east into Syria, following the road north into Damascus and then beyond to the ancient city of Palmyra, somewhere he'd always dreamed of visiting. But unfortunately, ISIS had got there first
1: going there and seeing the devastation not just the um the the desecration of monuments and uh the 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 architecture which of course is is tragic you know and as a historian myself that is horrible to see but also just to contemplate what happened there you know to to people you know they use this roman theater for public executions you know the the isis did and i met the the son of the guy that was the 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 director of antiquities in palmyra uh, who was 85 years old and he was murdered by isis in the city that he was there to to protect so awful stories um, some of it like the triumphal arch or the, the 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 temple of baal are gone forever so very very sad
0: palmyra was one of the great cultural cities of the ancient world an oasis in the desert at the conflux of greek roman and persian influences Before the war, great ruined temples and theatres with huge stone arches and ornate columns, every bit as impressive as its Greek and Roman counterparts stood on this site. But Isis, viewing it as heretic, as a pagan symbol, blew it up, literally. And that, beyond the human cost, is perhaps the most tragic and lasting legacy of this war. The systematic destruction and looting of some of the oldest and most precious antiquities on earth. But he had to press on and it wasn't all sad because he met some great people in Syria too, storytellers and families, and he found laughter and hospitality despite everything. And that perhaps, those people's resolve and genuine kindness, provides the greatest hope for their future and the future of the region. So after Syria, he crossed into Lebanon and from then on, it should have been easy. The end was in sight, but there was one challenge left and he wasn't expecting it.
1: So after going through the you know the, the deserts of Syria and crossing into Lebanon, it really did feel like a bit of a homecoming because it was just into the, the sort of um, the spring of 2018. And uh, but I, you know up until that point of the journey, it had been pretty hot. But so to cross into Lebanon, the altitude gets higher and it was suddenly very cold. And then I realised there's a big mountain range in front of me and going through the Baalbek Valley, which is basically filled with Hezbollah, who were actually very friendly Um, we then had to climb over this mountain range with one of the lads from the local village um, who had lots of of friends in Hezbollah but he offered to to show me the way and it turns out we're faced with absolute you know gale force winds snow up to our waists and it was um, a a pretty epic physical challenge to get over this mountain and down onto the other side uh, in one piece so uh, luckily we did but it, it came close a few times
0: It did. And this poor lad from the local village, who really wasn't a guide at all, he'd never been up this mountain before, was just shivering in a tiny little coat, in shock, basically. And Lev had to put his arm around him and pull him up the mountain in waist-deep snow. But then finally, they reached the top of the pass. The weather cleared and the sea, the Mediterranean, the end of his journey was finally in sight.
1: Well, the end part of the journey was sort of walking down the other side of this mountain range um, into the Levant, which people who live there certainly don't class themselves as, as being part of Arabia. This has a very European feel. So you're walking through these ancient cedar forests down towards the coast, towards Byblos, which is, again, one of the oldest cities in the world. Arguably the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. And that's where I wanted to finish, right, right on the beach at the at the Mediterranean Sea facing home. And, um, and it was quite emotional, I remember, because it Felt like I had come full circle and sort of tried to understand a very complex region. Um, and I came away with more questions than I, <laughs> than I had at the start. And I think that's probably the sign of a good journey.
0: It is. It's a sign of listening, a sign of paying attention, a sign of caring about the people and places you visit. And that's exactly what Levison did. And right at the end, I asked him at the end of his journey, a journey which he had set out on to better understand this troubled yet inspiring region. How did he see its future?
1: I think there is hope. I think um, there has to be hope, really, because um, this is a region that is, is changing. It's in flux. It, whether, whether anyone likes it or not, change is coming. Um, people will have to adapt climate change is having a, a huge effect, not just on Arabia, around the world, but any area that there's deserts, these deserts are getting bigger, people will shift, there's going to be more migration, we're going to have to adapt. So I think there is, there is hope in the sense that people are always resilient, but they're probably most resilient in places where there is conflict and strife, because they've, they've got that experience, actually, more than anything else. And I think that will get them through.
0: He writes at the end of the book, It's in human nature to build walls and fuel hostility. Tribalism creates divisions, which in turn brings unity to the few. But for society to flourish and develop, walls must come down. Only through open mindedness, courage, and education can ignorance and fear be defeated. Arabia represents the worst and best of us, and maybe that's why it's so fascinating. Maybe they go hand in hand. Maybe. Like that old antique seller in Jerusalem said, it's where we're meant to work it out. That somewhere here where humanity can be its most divisive and cruel, we will also find the courage and hope to do better, to unite. And that perhaps is what that army officer who posted Levison's wallet back all those years ago meant to, above all else, travel. Because beneath the stereotypes and headlines, there are families and kindness and love and hope and light. And if we can find it, if we can find that light, we become more tolerant, more understanding. We can dispel the darkness just a little bit ourselves. Thank you, Levison. Thank you so much for taking us on this incredible journey. The book is out now. It's amazing. It goes into much more detail and you really get into the region and see the place through his eyes. I highly recommend it. It's called Arabia, A Journey Through the Hearts of the Middle East. I will link to it or you can just find it anywhere you like. Please also check out his new photography book, Encounters. There's some beautiful, beautiful imagery in there. I'll be posting some of it over the next few weeks. I'm also really looking forward to reading his new book, Walking with Giants. It's about African elephants, one of my favorite animals, but also one of the most endangered. And this book is all about inspiring the fight to save them. Finally, remember to go and book those tour tickets. Levison will be talking in person. It's a great show. It's in the UK in autumn 2021. He's a fun guy. He's an amazing guy. And you're going to come out of that desperate to explore the world just like him. Go to levesonwood.com to find out more about all of this. So we've come to the end of this story. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this community. and remember. The more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.